Now, because some of those words were frankly hard to say, um, that's why, and hard to understand, that's why for this ho the whole term we are breaking it down week by week. And last week we painted this big vision uh, of the cosmic Jesus. We looked at the part of the creed that they read out, which is gone. Um, where it, here it is. Here we go. Last week we looked at this bit. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made. We looked at that concept, which was pretty intense, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was hopefully brain-stretching, or certainly we find ourselves at the limits of our vocabulary when we try to explain exactly how God the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit work together. Well, today we're looking at the next part of the statement in the Creed, uh, essentially two lines. And if last week was the kind of the big cosmic, this is who Jesus is and this is why it matters, this week is the, this is what he came to do and this is what he's here for. It's these two lines uh, that they read out for us. He appeared for us and for our salvation. He came down from heaven for us and our salvation. And to help with that, what I want to help with explaining that, what I want to do is I've, I've got some props and we'll see how we get on. I want us as a church to learn a question and answer. For hundreds of years, the way people taught the Christian faith was through a series of questions and answers. You'd, you'd learn them both as a way of understanding like a summary of what the Bible is. And so this side of the room, you're going to be asking the question, and this side of the room, you're going to be doing the answer. Um, and so let's look at this. This is the question. Here it is. The question is, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is your only comfort, or you might say confidence, what is your only confidence, what's your only hope, what's your only comfort in life and in death? Because I don't know if you've had the experience of, of being in church sometimes, and it looks like everybody else is really experiencing something. People seem to sing, they sing with their eyes closed, they're aware of some power, there's a connection between them and God or the ideas that we're singing about. They clearly are experiencing a lot of comfort. So the question is, well, how, how are they experiencing that? Why are they feeling like that and I might not be? And so to help us understand part of that dynamic that goes on, I think what we need to do is to understand this question. What is your only comfort in life and death? Because if you understand what your only source of confidence and comfort is, then you understand why it is that you might not be experiencing the same comfort and confidence that other people are experiencing. If you don't believe the same thing as them, if you're not on the same page as them, then it's likely you're going to just be a spectator watching rather than entering in. So I want to explain what it meant that Jesus came for us and for our salvation by using this question for us. Uh, what is your comfort, only comfort in life and death? And this is the answer just to kind of predict where we're going. And it's a, few, it's a few boards long, so this might not work as well. I've only got so many hands. Oh, here we go. This is the answer, that I belong, body and soul, in life and death, oh, to my faithful saviour, Jesus. And then there's more that I ran out of cards. <laughs> Can we put the next bit up? All right, the budget only goes so far. Next slide. Or maybe it's right at the end. Yeah, right at the end of the PowerPoint. Sorry, this is brilliant administration on my part. No, it's not there. Are you sure? Okay, all right, fine. Well, it's a really good end to the question. Um, you'll just have to trust me. Right, let's... Yeah, that's it. There he goes. Perfect. Okay, let's, let's do this question again. Okay, what is your only comfort in life and death? 
that I belong in life and death, body and soul, no, I got it the wrong way around, didn't I? To my faithful Savior, Jesus, he has fully paid for all my sins and has set me free from the power of the devil. The reason why, as Christians, we get very excited and we think there's a lot of reasons for joy and to celebrate. And we think church should be about being obsessed with Jesus and getting passionate about what he's done for us and what he's calling us to live, how he's calling us to live and why that matters. The reason we get so excited is because of this, that we belong not to ourselves, our comfort and our confidence. It's not come from me and my brilliance. We belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior Jesus who has fully paid for all my sins and has rescued me from all the power of the devil. That's thick and juicy and rich and we're going to read that aloud together at the end. So that's where we're going. Which way around does this go, Amy? Thank you. Thank you. There's the brains of the marriage. And to get us there, we're going to read together from John's Gospel. So last week, we kind of, we marinated, that was my phrase, we marinated in several scriptures. I read out quite a few and just let it, let you stew in its juices, let you soak it in. It was very juicy, very juicy. Well, today we're going to look at a, a longer chunk, essentially one story of something that happened to Jesus when he walked and talked on the earth, and we're going to look at what that means for us. Okay. Let's read John chapter 3. I'm going to read from verse 1 all the way down to verse 21, and then we'll spend some time commenting on it. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders who were held in high regard by the people. They were kind of the, they had the soft power in the society. They didn't have any official titles, but everybody listened to them. Rather like how we all listen to Jerry or someone in the church. We think she has the soft power and everything. I want to do whatever she says. That's what the... Simon? Except for Simon, that's true. Well, your power can only extend so far. No one has any power over Simon. Right. Now there was a man of the Pharisees. Um, This is what happens when you don't script what you're going to say. Named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The man came to Jesus by night. So he's an influential figure. He's come to Jesus by night in the darkness, under the cover of darkness. In other words, he doesn't really want people to know that he's coming to Jesus because his, his friends, the Pharisees, they're a little bit suspicious of Jesus. He's a ruler among the Pharisees, but he thinks, I'm intrigued. He's doing and saying some things that are catching people's attention. I need to go check this guy out. And so he does it at night. And he said to Jesus, Rabbi or teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Uh-oh. <laughs> we know you're a teacher who come from God. We're just not really listening to you. We're just a little bit suspicious of you. In other words, we don't think we can control you. That makes us nervous, especially since we think you've come from God. We know you're a teacher come from God for the reason for that is that no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. People were being healed as a response, a result of what Jesus was doing. PTSD as an example of Jesus being at work in healing people's bodies in the present day, but in Jesus' day, he was renowned for similar things. No one can do the sorts of things you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, or in the language that Jesus spoke, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, you may have heard the phrase born-again Christian before and thought, what does that mean? Now, this is a different type of Christian. But Jesus says, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. 
So Nicodemus said to him, much like many of you would say, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Amen, amen, I say to you. Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind, which is a word very similar to spirit, the spirit, the wind, blows where it wishes. You hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. There is a response to God that occurs directly as a result of God's activity in a person's life. You can't predict it. You can't manufacture it. You, manufacture it, you can't just play you know, beautiful music and have impressive shows and produce some magic. You can't do that. It's entirely a work of God, coming to God, experiencing some of this comfort. On one level, it's entirely a response and result of God's activity in a person's life. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? In other words, you're the guy that's supposed to get this and you don't. The people you're teaching are in trouble. They don't understand, and the people who are leading them don't understand. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we've seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Jesus is saying, look, no one's, no one's been in heaven with God except the Son of Man who's come from God to earth. Last week we looked at what, who and what Jesus thought he was and what the Bible says that Jesus is as the Son of God, the eternal, pre-existent, co-equal member of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He and he alone was with God and has come to earth to be with us. He calls himself the Son of Man, which is a religious title or a title from the Bible given to this glorious figure who exists in God's presence all the time and has come to earth. And to explain, I think, the kind of, what's the phrase I'm looking for? The, um, the cosmology, it's a nice word for a Sunday morning, the cosmology of the, the Jewish mind and of what Jesus was, how Jesus' friends taught and thought, we have to understand how they saw the world. They understood the world essentially as being um, us on earth, this is earth, we'll, we'll write earth in case you get confused, uh, and then there is above the earth, there is heaven, the, the heaven with the clouds and the birds where they where they fly. I'm not going to try and draw a bird. Uh, but then beyond the clouds, people could tell by observing things that there was something outside of our atmosphere that came out especially at night. The, the stars and the moon and there's a song in that, isn't there? The stars and the moon, they're, they're above us. So you have the first heaven, you have the second heaven. But then for the Jewish person, they understood God doesn't live in those bits with the stars. He's beyond even that. And so they talk about the third heaven, the place where God lives that God dwells. And there's this distance between earth, man, God. And you can understand, if you were just walking around and trying to understand reality, you would look up and think, gosh, if there's a creator, he must be far away. He must be up there somewhere. Now, the Jewish people didn't really think 
in terms of God being far above. I mean, when the Russians sent an astronaut into heaven, they came back and they said, we've proved there is no God because we've, we've been to space. When the Russians sent an astronaut into, I said heaven, didn't I? When the Russians, that would be impressive. When the Russians sent an astronaut into space, they came back and said, we've proved there is no God because we've been to space and we didn't see God. But they misunderstand. That's like saying, I can't see invisible things, therefore they don't exist. Well, no, they don't by nature of that. God is not somewhere else in the, the physical, material part of the universe. When the, when the Jewish people thought of the third heaven, they thought of a space outside of time and space and the universe. Heaven, heavens, the heavens where God lives. Jesus is saying, the Son of Man has come from that space. That he's removed himself and no one else has done that. When he talks about himself, he says there is no one else who has ascended and descended to be with us. That's what makes Jesus, in his own understanding, so wildly different from anybody else who's able to teach and lead people. That's what makes Jesus different from many of the other religious leaders. Muhammad never said this. Buddha never said this. Confucius never said this. No, no, no other of our influential global figures have ever said this, that I am essentially God, come from God to be with man on the earth. But Jesus said that about himself. That's partly what makes him different. That's partly what makes some of the things he says quite outrageous and difficult for us to understand. He says this, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Moses lifted up a serpent in the wilderness. Of course, Nicodemus will understand. He's talking about Moses in the Old Testament. At a time where a plague and a disease was breaking out among the people of Israel, Moses uh, held up a stick. A snake wrapped itself around it, bit the stick. And then everybody who looked at this serpent was healed. The disease stopped on them. He's saying to Nicodemus, just as that happened in the Old Testament, so the Son of Man, Jesus, must be lifted up from the earth and everybody who looks to him will be healed. Now in the story of Moses, he's talking about physical healing. And so that's why so much of what Jesus did involved physical healing. People, when they encountered him, left well. It's incredible when someone like Fran stands up and shares a story of what God's done in healing them. It's incredible, but it ought not to be surprising. It ought to be, well, yes, that's what he's always done. Just as Moses was lifted up, so Jesus, when he's lifted up, he heals people. He restores people. And um, this, is what, this is what this man, Ellis Potter, says about this, which I think is a, is a brilliant example. Um, page 68, he says... Notice this, Jesus didn't die on the earth. He didn't die in heaven. He was hanging on a cross, suspended between heaven and earth. And the Roman emperor of the day was called Pontifex Maximus, the great bridge builder. But that title is more fitting for the crucified Christ who connects the creator and the creation, eternity and time, the imminent the far above, imminent, and the transcendent, the experience of the spiritual all around us. He connects those things. He brings together all things by the power of his spoken word, by the power of his blood, making a new reality. That's what Jesus said he came to do, to essentially be lifted up on the earth to restore people to God. Let's carry on. For God so loved the world, 
that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out by God. There's a lot of talk of light and dark, light and dark. And if you know John's gospel at all, then you'll know the page before, right at the very beginning, when John introduces Jesus, he uses the same ideas of light and darkness. Light has come into the world and the darkness has not overcome it or understood it. So Jesus then, when he talks about himself, John includes it as if to say, look, what we said about this cosmic figure, the Word that was in the beginning that, became, uh, that came to earth, the Word that was with God and is God, Jesus then says similar things to make the readers go, ah, oh, so that Word is this man. He's talking about light and darkness. So why did Jesus come? Well, the creed says, for us and for our salvation. Jesus himself has just said that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but, in, but to save the world. And all the world will be saved through him. Which is good news. It is good news, but it's really only good news if you think you need saving. Isn't it? That's why I think for a lot of the time we can sing songs and we can see people worshipping Jesus and think, lovely for them. Why? I'm, I'm all right though. I, I, I don't get it. Why are they so excited about this? And the reason they're so excited about it, if you're asking, you're not, but I'm putting the words in your mouth, the reason we're so excited about it is because we think we need saving. Jesus said, I've not come to call the healthy, but the sick. I've not come to call those who've got it together, but the needy. And what people saw in Jesus was one who healed them, was one who restored them, was one who dealt with their deepest needs. So what do you and I need saving from? If I was to ask you, if I was to ask your friends or your family, what do you need saving from? Now people would probably, depending on what part of the world you ask them and at what period in history you ask them, we'd come up with different things. We need saving from the Vikings. We need saving from the people over the sea who are going to come and destroy us in the morning. We need saving from them. We need saving from the injustices all around us. We need saving from starvation. Or in our society, we need saving from our chronic debt that's killing us and suffocating us. That's why it's important that we run things like the money course to help us. We need saving from anxiety. We need saving from fear. We need saving from boredom. Or, or maybe, I think, as I, as I look around at our society, I think partly one of the reasons why so few people percentagely are in church on any Sunday morning is because we, we We've built a very nice, stable society, which if you're middle class, you've got very little that you think you need saving from. Maybe until something goes wrong in your life, uh, until a relationship breaks down, or until your health starts to fail. Maybe then you become aware, I need saving from something. What do we need saving from? You see, and this is where the Bible's answer is quite stark and bleak. But before you, you know, in some instances, bad news is actually good news. To be told it's far worse than you think is actually good. Because I could come to you and say, I've got a, I've got a real need. I really want to be free from, I don't know what it is, um, my chronic anxiety. 
and I could address the chronic anxiety or I could say, mm, that's, that's actually not your biggest need. Things are far worse than you think. And sometimes bad news in that sense is good news. If the doctor says to you, if you go to the doctor for a cough, and he says to you, we found something much worse than a cough, but we found it early enough that we can treat it, it's good news. A couple of years ago, we were, we were due to go on a holiday with the kids just before Christmas, and I think a week beforehand, we found out their passport hadn't been approved. I said to Amy, I'll sort the passport applications out, don't worry. She worried, and I said, what are you worrying about? I'll phone them up to check. Phone them up. Yes, no, there was something wrong with your application form. We're sending it back. (laughs) Bad news. We've spent hundreds of pounds on a holiday of a lifetime, and we're leaving a child behind. Not always bad news, let's be honest. Good news! (laughs) I've never seen my wife so angry. Can I share that publicly? No, no, sorry, I shouldn't have done that. It was bad news, but it was good because we, we caught it in time that we were able to solve it and we were able to still go on holiday. It was worse news when we arrived on the day of the holiday and the aeroplane wasn't even in the parking lot (laughs) Um, or runway. That's the thing. They don't sit in parking lots. (coughs) So they had to get the aeroplane down from wherever it was up in the third heaven, I suppose, and and sort it out. Bad news is bad news, but but if you get it early enough, then it's actually good news. The good news is your problems are far worse than you realize. You actually need saving. The Bible says there's lots of things you need saving from. Here's just three. Guilt, shame, and slavery. You need saving from guilt because every human being who's ever born is guilty before God. The Bible's word for it is that we're sinners, which is a a term from archery. Um, To miss the target that you're aiming at is to sin. Every person who's ever lived is guilty of missing the target of their life, target of what they were supposed to do with their life, target of pleasing God fully. We're sinners. As a result of sin in the world, we experience shame. We're aware of our imperfection and our lack. We feel it sticking to us everywhere we go. We're heads down. We lack confidence because of shame and imperfection. And also the result of sin in the world is that we, we try to solve it by pursuing things that only ever enslave us further. We be- Jesus says anyone who sins is a slave to sin. You can't stop it. I dare you. (laughs) Try living wholeheartedly for God and honoring Him. Just try with the the Ten Commandments we looked at last week, last term. I mean, just try with one of those. You can't do it. You'll fail. Anyone who sins, Jesus says, is a slave to that sin. You're trapped. You're bound. You're in chains. And in some instances, it's obvious where people are addicted to substances or to doing things that they know they shouldn't, but they can't help it. They just do. In some instances, it's obvious but in a lot of other ways, it's less obvious. We're enslaved. So Jesus came to save us, and we need saving. This is what it says. For God so loved the world, Jesus said. And that phrase, God so loved the world, because of how we use the word so, we use it like God so loved the world, because we've all watched the, the sitcom Friends in the 90s, and that's what Chandler did with that word so. So like, God so loved the world, put all of our emphasis on that word, was actual fact. This will mess with your minds. In the, in the way that it's written in the original language, the emphasis is different from that. It doesn't say, for God so loved the world. It actually says, for so God loved the world. 
which is a subtle difference, but it's important. God loved the world in this way, Jesus is saying. In this way, God loved the world. In what way? For God so loved the world, so God loved the world, that he gave his only Son, the Father, Son, and Spirit, eternally God. He gave his only Son to the world to deal with our guilt, to deal with our shame, to deal with our slavery. He came to build that bridge between us and God so that we could have eternal life, it says. And eternal life is not life that never ends, although it doesn't ever end. Because again, if you, if you tell a, a six-year-old, if I tell my six-year-old, if you believe in Jesus, you'll have eternal life, you'll live forever, they think, I'm going to live forever anyway. Of course I am. What are you talking about? It's not relevant to me. The older you get, perhaps the more aware of your own mortality you become, and so you're more interested. But eternal life is less about how long the life is, and it's more about the the type of life that it is. See, I have here my laptop, which, um, being an Apple Mac, is the best type of computer there is in the world. Um, And, you know, you could say that I'm part of a cult that is the cult of Apple. Now, as good as this computer is, it doesn't have eternal life. It has life that it's borrowed and it's constantly running down. I'm told that it's got 44% of life left. And you could look at your own life and say, what percentage of life have I got left? Now you can do things, eat and drink the right things and exercise the right way to increase your percentage. Oh, there's some happy children somewhere. (laughs) But your life is borrowed. It's running down. What it needs is to be plugged into a life source that means that the life in the battery, in the, in the laptop, will not run out. And when the light comes on, there's eternal life in there. I'm assuming someone's out there. <laughs> it's okay. Fine. Jesus said, in this way God loved the world. He sent his only son. Never, whoever believes in him, and that word belief just means to trust, to look wholeheartedly to Whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have thick, rich, juicy, eternal life. It's to be on that bridge. Or if I was to rub this out and do it the other way. Here's God. Here's us. When Jesus died on the cross, he came for us and for our salvation to be a bridge for us that we could know God. We could know eternal life. That's what Jesus came for. He came for us and for our salvation. He came to clear our debt, the guilt that we had before God. He came to remove our shame. He came to set us free from slavery. I once heard a story about a a married couple and they'd been married for some time, when the wife confessed to her husband that before they were married, she, she cheated on him with someone else. And she told him with her eyes down on the floor, just full of shame for what she'd done. Desperately sorry for breaking this trust relationship with her husband. And after she told the husband, the man got up and he left the room just, and went in the car and drove off somewhere. And she thought the worst. I've broken it. I've lost it. I've tried to repair it, but it's gone. The man drove to the, the nearest shop and bought a white bathrobe and came home and sat in front of his wife and gave her the robe and told her to put it on. 
He said, your shame has been removed. I forgive you. That's a beautiful picture of what Jesus does when he removes your shame. He covers it, he cleans you, he pardons you, and he enables you to know God. And knowing God means that you know and are plugged into eternal life itself. So we asked this question at the beginning, what is your only comfort in life and in death? What is it? Is it that you're good? No, you're guilty. Is it that you're confident and strong? No, we experience shame. Is it that you are clever and you can live the best life possible? No, because we enslave ourselves through the way that we live. Our confidence comes from this, that if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, then you belong body and soul. Here we go. That was the big crescendo, wasn't it? Oh, you belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful saviour Jesus he who has fully paid for all your sins and has set you free from the power of the devil that's what we mean that's what the creed means when it says he came for us and for our salvation that's why we sing that's why we celebrate that's why we get happy it's why we look to Jesus to heal us of our illnesses. It's why we look to Jesus to free us from our slavery. It's why we look to Jesus to cleanse us from our shame, to forgive us for our guilt so that we can know him. And we're going to finish by reading this together. This half, you're going to be like the teachers asking this half the question because I've been looking at this half and I think they are definitely the students looking to you for wisdom and guidance. So this half of the room, read it out for us. That sounded like they've been listening to a sermon for half an hour. <laughs> and they're thinking, coffee time in a minute, isn't it, mate? Let's do it nice and loud, like we're at the pantomime. Ready? Three, two, one. All right, I mean, that wasn't great, but we'll deal with it. Here we go. And you guys are going to read the answer like it means something to you, okay? Even if you don't believe it, I don't care right now. Just play along and make me feel better. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hallelujah. Well done. You did so much better than them. You're my favourites. Well done. <coughs> we're going to finish by praying together and we're going to break bread. And we're going to take communion as an act of responding to Jesus. And listen, if you would like to become a Christian today, if, if that means if you would like to put your hope in Jesus today for the first time and ask him to forgive you, to free you, to cleanse you, you can do that. You can do that as we sing. Or I'm going to ask Mama Jane. Um, Jane, give us a wave. This is Mama Jane. Wave. There we go. I'm going to ask Mama Jane to go upstairs uh, into the first room on the left. And she's going to be there with uh, Simon. Good man. Um, to pray for you. If you'd like to talk anything through, if you'd like to pray for healing, if you'd like to become a Christian, you can go and see them. And you can do that while we're singing the last song and we're breaking bread and having communion together as a church. Okay? Let me pray. Sarah and the guys are going to come up and then we'll respond.